Well, hello, and welcome back to From the Center, the podcast of the Center for Western Studies. I'm John Hodges, the director here, and I'm with my friend and colleague, Ben. And we are going to be continuing the conversation we've started in the last couple of issues uh, about civilization and culture and how one discerns um, uh, between those two, as well as... Um, well, let's just kind of do a little review, maybe. The, big, the first episode we did a couple of weeks ago was to talk about the differences between civilization and culture and what criteria there are for, to, to define a civilization. There seemed like there were some unifying beliefs that might hold together multiple cultures, like Italian culture with Russian culture with Irish culture or something, North African culture, whatever. Uh, and that led us to uh, the idea that axioms are important. That is, that we believe things in order that we might be able to reason from them, rather than um, rather than trying to reason to everything that's at our, at our foundations. Uh, so axioms are somehow unprovable and yet essential for any further proof. Well, then if that's the case, if we're not using our reason to get to our axioms, if, if, if rational thought anyway, at least in, in, a, in a rationalistic way of looking at things, that kind of thought isn't going to lead us to axioms, that we need the axioms in order to begin to reason. Well, then how do we go about deciding uh, and discerning among givens, among axioms? How is it that we make sense of things without reasoning from them, if that's the way to put it? Um, and that's kind of how we left, if I remember right, that's how we left our last session. So I thought we'd I'd love to try and dive in there and see what we can make sense of. Is there any way that we could begin uh, to discern uh, about axioms? Why this axiom and not that one? What do you think? How, where do we go about, where do we go start it's, there? It's a this good question. Of, well, glad to be here with you, Joe. Yeah, so glad um, to have you back, Ben. Uh, yeah, it, it's an easy question we've set ourselves. This, this shouldn't take more than five <laughs> minutes, right? Um, we, we talked about some basic axioms if we even want to start reasoning. So we talked about taking it as an assumption that there is such a thing as um, knowledge, that, that it's possible for us to know the world we live in, to know ourselves, we're, we're in an ordered state that can be known. And then the assumption that we as humans have a faculty that's capable of perceiving reality. Right. Whether it's right. flawless or not, in fact, we don't think it's flawless, right. but, but that it's possible for us to get to know what's real. Right. If we assumed it was flawed, so flawed that it would never give us reliable information, then we wouldn't bother to use it at all, would we? So we have to believe that there's some ability to make sense of things, even if it's not a perfect ability. We do. And, and of course, it's a, it's a bit of a cash 22, because if our, uh, if our reasoning was so flawed that we couldn't ever know reality, then by definition, we wouldn't know that we couldn't know reality. <laughs> so we would, we would still continue to think that we could and we'd be mistaken. But that's, that. why, that's why we talked about having to take axioms on faith right. without them justifying themselves in order to even be able to start reasoning. Yeah. So yeah. we do. We, we yeah. take that as an assumption. But once we talk about 
civilizations. So this is, um, we use the Scruton um, book to talk about um, a body of people in the long term that have um, a kind of hegemony of institutions and laws and identity and things that are expressed in the culture, mm -hmm. the culture carrying and codifying the values. But culture is really art and stories and, and the things that express the mm -hmm. life of the civilization. Mm -hmm. That's the That would be the culture of it, wouldn't that it? That would be the, the culture, culture of the civilization. Of and the culture could be in... in I'm thinking about, for example, uh, uh, say, you know, the, the, the Russian Orthodox and the uh, Anglicans and the Roman Catholics all uh, agree to the Incarnation, and so they believe yes. in the the, in Christmas, they celebrate Christmas. Maybe on different days, I don't know exactly. But so, but so the idea of celebrating the incarnation is unique, is, is uh, universal to all. Yep. And yet, the songs that the Italians <laughs> sing, the liturgy is different. The liturgy is different, and the in the I'm thinking the Christmas carols. You can tell a French carol from an Italian one, or a yes. Russian one, or an Irish one. Yeah. Uh, and so they have their individual cultures, but those are cultures that are manifestations of. Maybe the same general universal idea in that case. Yeah, we could think of it like a Venn diagram where much, maybe all, but certainly much of the values contained in the culture or that the culture is expressing could be the same as another culture. Uh -huh. You know, maybe we consider those as part of one overarching civilization maybe different branches from the tree of a particular civilization. To yeah. continue yeah. the kind of tree metaphor. Um, so there can be a lot of shared um, life between cultures, mm -hmm. as well as some things that are that are different. I think the, the the different Orthodox churches is a great example because there would be things that Eastern Orthodoxies believe as core values that aren't the same as right. even Roman Orthodox. Right. But there would be much that is the same. That's so cool. thinking of it like a Venn diagram where there can be cross life yeah. but then there are also things that identify that as as a separate or individual culture but i'm thinking that uh the the, the it's the the things that they have in common that can make them one civilization with, yes but the yes but the cultural expressions of that civilization might be very different yes i think so uh, and that's a distinction then between civilization and culture but we got down to the point of axioms and the idea that uh, since an axiom can't be proven scientifically or even logically, uh, it has to be simply held to begin with, um, how do you go about making sense of those axioms? How do, how do you decide that this one is one to hold and that one is not? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a very difficult question. And I was thinking... Of, of a few things. I, mm -hmm. Let's talk about both of our ideas about uh, about this. I was thinking about a couple of things. First of all, um, it seems to me that there are givens in life in general, not the least of which is the existence of life. Yeah. You know, the old Cartesian uh, joke was uh, the the uh, the evil demon might be able to fool me about a lot of things, but he can't fool me about my existence when I don't. 
if I don't exist, <laughs> see, <laughs> there's nothing to there's fool. There's no, nobody there to fool. Yeah. So maybe the one thing I can be sure of is that cogito ergo, ergo sum. I, yeah, I, I, I'm there because I because I'm thinking think about I, it. Yeah. Uh, so so the the given of life is something that needs to be taken into consideration. Whatever system we embrace as acts on the axiomatic level, it has to in, include the reality of life. Um, and since life is a mystery uh, at its inception, at its beginning, uh, and why I'm here may be vague and mysterious, uh, death is also uh, a mystery. Yes. And so what, what happens to me after death matters, you know. So I start asking questions like, like Sire's worldview questions. Uh, James Sire, you remember, mm -hmm. wrote that yep. book, Universe Next Door. And he had seven, and I added an eighth one, frankly, uh, uh, worldview questions. Um, who, who is prime reality? What is prime reality? Yeah. That is God. What is uh, secondary reality? What is dependent reality? Uh, what is man? What happens to man at death? Yep. Um, how do we know the true? How do we know the good? How do we know the beautiful? Okay. And I added the beautiful because he didn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'm an aesthetic, so. More evangelical. <laughs> well, Less maybe. Less so. maybe. <laughs> oh, I'd like to think I'm more orthodox. No, I mean sire. Oh, sire. Right. Oh, right. Gotcha. Yes, right, right. And then, uh, and then uh, the nature of history. That was the eighth oh, one. Oh, okay. How does it's history, been a long how time since I read that. Work, but. Uh, but anyway, the the question, the fourth question, what happens to man at death, is part of this this, this sense of a given. You know, yes. we we all see death around us, not only in plants and you know, and in, in insects and so on, in a short scale, pets, yeah. but we also see it in our in our families, in our loved ones, in our neighbors, and so on. And what do we make of that? You know. Uh, and then the, that, so so things like the cycles of of uh, life and death in the world that we see in agriculture, cycles of life and death in human beings, uh, are give. They're things that we have to wrestle with. There, it's not like we can adjust them to fit our system. We have to we have to make sense of things, including those givens. If you see what I mean. Yes. You know. Well, I think there's another given that a lot of times people want to. Dismissed because they think it's religious. Yep. But I'm thinking it's 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 a simple fact, just like life and death is, mm -hmm. uh, and that's the resurrection. Yeah. Because the claim is that this man Jesus died and rose from the dead. In fact, far more claim that is that he said how he was going to do it before he did it. <laughs> so he predicted it even that he was going to rise from the dead, and uh, and and so. What you think of that notion, that historical fact, has to be a part of the uh, system that we that we uh, create that on, on an axiomatic level. Um, and like I said a, a minute ago, that I think some people want to reject that because it's a a, a biblical religious notion, and uh, and I want to say that it's a far bigger thing than simply the the trappings of a particular religion, like like. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Assyrian religion or Egyptian religion or something. It's not even even uh, Islam. Um, it's yeah. a it's a it's a physical historical fact, like like George Washington living. That's the claim. Yeah. You know, that's the claim. Now, yeah, I'm not I'm not even at the point where saying that it's true. I'm just saying that that's it the has claim to be wrestled with. Civilization is that um, the the incarnation of God into flesh right. involved. 
the life and the death of God. Yes. And then the resurrection the of resurrection God back to life. God. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. That's right. And if that's true, I mean, we can read non-Christian historians that refer to the resurrection. I'm thinking about Josephus, for example, yes. the Jewish historian. But there are others too, and they and they at least <coughs> record that the claim at the time was that these people saw Jesus after he came back to life. Yep. You know. So what do you do with that? Um, whatever you do with it, it seems to me it needs to be part of the, it, it needs to be one of the sort of natural givens, historical events that we have to take into consideration. And then maybe we can begin to form um, discernment about our, our axioms based on those things. If it doesn't fit those things, then maybe it's not going to fit, mm-hmm. you know, if it doesn't fit gravity, if it doesn't fit the motion of stars, the recurrence of uh, various uh, various constellations at certain seasons of the year, various things that seem to happen all the time. Um, but what help is that? Is that of help, do you think? What do you think? I think that there's a way that we're starting to look at these things that is very helpful. So um, we talk about uh, in, in what we call our Western civilization, that has a obviously a Christian root, and that Christian root has other roots too. Right. So there's a there's a Judaic, there's a Greek root, right. um, there's some Roman in there, uh, but certainly the Christian element of our civilization is based around a really small number of super core ideas. One of which is that God came to Earth, incarnated Himself as a man, was crucified. And rose, and that's that's a central claim of our civilization. Now, what effects does that have? What's what's the outworking of that in our civilization? Is a, th- a thing I think we, we should definitely get to. Something to start thinking about is what did that claim look like to the other civilizations that met it? Hmm. So did the Romans or the Greeks come into contact with that claim and say, oh, yeah, that's kind of a normal thing that everybody's sort of saying? Mm -hmm. Or did they have a reaction to it? Mm -hmm. So that that helps to tell us a little bit about whether it's a a universal human um, idea that's always been around or whether maybe it's an idea that kind of came in at a particular time. So there was nothing new or weird to the Greeks about the idea of a god dying and being reborn. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. That's something, you know, we've got uh, Dionysius uh, right. and, and, and the Maenads. We've got, you know, obviously uh, Demeter and Persephone. We've got certainly the cycles of life and death and rebirth absolutely key. You know, right, and Joseph right. Campbell would say that's because it's all, you know, corn religion. He and he and Jung. Yeah. Um, but uh, but you see it in other myths too, don't you? You see it in uh, Norse mythology. You see it in Balder. In, Certainly, in dying Balder and the Beautiful back. is dead. Yeah. Yes. And you see it in, um, um, I guess I'm... Seth and uh, Horus in Egypt. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes, Seth. Yep. So, right. So it's not a straight... Does it... 
like you're saying, uh, Joseph Campbell would say that it's just simply a, a, it's an, an echo of the, the cycle of, that it, we see every season, yes. uh, every year. Rather. And, and to answer Sire's question is the Christian would say the echo we see in the seasons is secondary reality and the resurrection is primary reality. That's right. That's so it's just right. a, it's a disagreement right. about which is primary and secondary. And, and Lewis would say that the Christian myth is the one that's true. Is the one that's, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but, but on the other side of the coin of, of the resurrection, the Romans had also had no problem in saying that a man would um, become a god. So deifying right. an emperor after right. his death, for example, is a completely familiar thing. Um, uh, everyone would do this as a matter of course. Sure. So the ideas of a god dying, the idea of a man becoming god, th- these things are not foreign to the other cultures of the mm-hmm. day at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. So what aspect of the incarnation and the resurrection is completely foreign? Mm. It's the idea that God would come down to suffer. Right. And God would come down as a peasant rather than a king. Yes. That God would yes. die a criminal's death. Yeah. Yeah. That's completely completely at odds. Sure. Um, yeah, it's the idea that uh, uh, the last shall be first, or any kind of condescension, true condescension. Condescension would be... We use that word as a, in a negative way from one person to another, but from a god to us, that's the right word. To descend word. to us, yeah. The yeah. Romans, the Romans wouldn't would have, have that at all. that, sure. That's yeah. right. That's right. In fact, that's the problem, I think, even with the idea of the Greek idea of logos, because... Plato, you know, and, and Socrates, and even maybe Aristotle would have used that word logos to describe the transcendent ideal, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but it's when it's when and so when John starts talking about the in the beginning was the word the yes. logos. It's a uh, you know it's a no, no problem for the Greeks. They said that's well we get that yeah, we understand yeah. that. It's the incarnation that's the problem for the Greeks. For the Greeks. What the Greeks would have an absolute problem with is it happened here on this day right. in this place. Yes, that's because right. Because for the Greeks, there isn't really a distinction between the worship and the myth. Uh-huh. But the, the, uh-huh. the ritual of the worship is the myth. Right. Is they the didn't, story. They didn't actually think it was going to be physical. The, they didn't expect it to happen in their lives and, and so on. But... But when he's incarnated, and oh, I was going to say that the the difference between them two is that uh, that uh, when Jesus dies as a human being, he doesn't come back as a god. He comes back as a physical human being walking among them still. Yes, that's unnerving. Yes, right. Uh, the, the idea that the I mean, even even some of the Roman. Uh, 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 Caesars mm-hmm. were considered deity during their lifetime. Yes, <laughs> right. Uh, in, in, yes. The, in the in uh, the to the empire, that they're deified. They're untouchable. Qu- completely. And, and it's almost an Eastern idea um, that, that's coming of, of the untouchable um, great oh, yeah, king one, of kings. Right, right, right. So that's uh, that's that's unnerving to everybody. To everybody, because 
Yeah, because the fundamental idea that's that's being encountered is that there's a massive separation between God and man. Right. And and that separation is, you know, probably for everyone's benefit, which is that man is down here and mm-hmm. God is up there. Yeah. And there's sure maybe it's possible for somebody to ascend towards um, God, you know, to be deified, a, a great ruler or a king. Mm-hmm. But the idea that God would, through his own work, bring himself down to men and bring men up to him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is a very young, and bring any man up to him is a very uncomfortable idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just doesn't seem godlike. It's very ungodlike. Yeah, it's it's, um, it doesn't seem moral. It doesn't seem dignified. Yeah. Um, yeah. But isn't it strange that so many of the mythological gods, Greek gods, Roman gods, themselves seem like big men? Very much so. You know, they don't they don't transcend. Their own moral codes, even they're, you know, they they have their own flaws, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and the Greek pantheon, like you say, is like human squabbles writ large. Writ large, exactly. Yeah. So there's a strange. It's true that the gods are up here and the people are down here, but the gods are very much like people, and we raise people up to be yes. like to at least be thought of as gods. So we're always trying to sort of close that gap. We're very much so. <laughs> yeah. But the 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 claim that the gap has actually now been closed. Oh yeah, right. Is is shocking. Yes, right, right, right. Un, and, and unbelievable, uh, unheard of, maybe is the way it's to put it. It's ridiculous. It's a joke. Yeah, right, right. When we um, talk about our civilization, I want to make a one little detour here just for a second to kind of clarify mm-hmm. something. Um, we talk about our civilization being uh, Christian, but also having roots in the Greeks and in the Jewish uh, background. Yes. I think it's, when we, whenever we talk about Western civilization, people mm-hmm. say oh, it's a combination of, of classical and, and Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. together. And I, I'm not sure that's fair. Okay. I, I'm not sure that's, that's just right. It seems to me that what we had is a, a Gentile world in the time of, of Jesus. We had a Gentile world and we had a Jewish world. And the Roman, Roman power was the head of the Gentile world, basically. Um, but we get uh, in Paul, the one that, that, that God called to be the, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, we get in him uh, the training that comes from uh, being a, a, a Pharisee. You know, he's a he's a Jew of Jews, as he calls himself. He's a yes. he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, knowing better than anyone the law and keeping it even better than anyone. So he he's deeply Jewish, mm-hmm. Paul. But at the same time, he was trained in Greek rhetoric. And Greek poetry, we see evidence of it in Acts 17 when he's on Mars Hill and yep. quoting the, the Gentile poets and so on, and the philosophers. We know that he has actually that ability, partly because of his letters too, because his letters are written off so often in, in forms that are uh, Greek-inspired. 
but what we've got then is a is one man called by God who is the combination of the Jewish and the Gentile worlds, th- ways of, of thinking, you know. And he's the one that was prepared by God to do that work long before he's called to faith. You know, he was as a child, he was trained in these two ways of thinking, of looking at the world. And so, in a sense, God has prepared him. So, what you've got is Paul, in Acts 9, being... Um, uh, being uh, called, you know, call, uh, thrown off his horse and blinded, and called to uh, f- to follow Jesus, and he's being and he's being described as the the man I've called. God says, the man I've called to the take the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, he's been preparing him to do that for many years, but but Paul has been persecuting the church all the while. This has been going on. God's plan was to get him to be converted and to be the one to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And all that training then gets put into practice. Um, and you see it, I think, most evidently in um, Acts 16, where Paul um, goes in on his second missionary journey, goes into um, uh, Asia Minor, to Turkey, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, and he says, I want to go east. And he says, God, stop me. And yes. said, no, you can't go east. I want you You're to go You're not the one to go east. Yeah. yeah. And then he says it again. He said, I wanted to run a little further in Phrygia, and I wanted to go east. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit, I think he says the Spirit of Jesus is the one, who, the second time, that stopped me. Yeah. And so I turned west again, and he ends up in Troas. And Troas, mm-hmm. of course, is on the, on the uh, Aegean, yes. on the west coast of, uh, of Turkey. And in... Uh, in uh, Troas, he has that famous dream of the Macedonian man saying, come over here and help us, you know. And Macedonia is further west, not east, west. Mm-hmm. And to get there, of course, you've got to go across the Aegean. So the next day, it says, he hops in a boat and he sails to Samothrace and then he sails on to, to uh, Macedonia where he meets Lydia and the rest of the story goes on from there. Well, what's interesting is from from the point of that dream in Troas, Paul never thinks about going east again. Okay. And so what he takes west is this embodied combination of Greek thought and Jewish thought, putting under the authority of Jesus himself, yes. right? And so Jesus is in a sense making fulfilling uh, both of those two things at the same time and doing it in it seems to me in this one man talking about western thinking because he then sets i think from that point on we get western civilization from troas onward because he goes west to macedonia and down to athens that's in 17 mm-hmm. and then to corinth and home again and then on the next the third missionary journey a few years later he does almost the same route mm-hmm never thinking about going east never. again. Yes. And when he gets to Corinth that time, he writes the book of Romans. And Rome, of course, is even further west. So he's thinking west. Yes. And at the end of the book of Romans, he has he a little... He wants to go to Spain. He wants to go to Spain, which to is even further. further west, right? So I think he's, he's, been, he's been led by God westward. Mm-hmm. So what we call Western civilization is really the combination of those two things interpreted through the, the bibli- biblical Christianity, the New Testament, mm-hmm. in Paul. And that's how Western civilization came to be. So we can call it a combination of Christian and Greek, but it's, 
it's not exactly that. It's it's Christian. It's uh, it's it's uh, Christianity reinterpreting both Greek and Hebrew thinking. It seems to me. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, um, I, I, I would say as an addendum to that yeah. that unless there was latent in Greek thought already something that was waiting for um, the revelation of Christ mm-hmm. to fulfill it then Paul wouldn't have found fruitful ground. <laughs> so, oh, right, I see what uh, you mean. Yes. So I think that there are seeds there already in Greek um, culture. Right. Just like there are less, but some seeds in Egyptian culture. There are some seeds in Persian culture. There are, mm-hmm. there are, there are certainly seeds in Roman culture, which is probably... Greek culture, you know, plus Extended. minus a couple of things. Sure, you know. sure, sure. Um, and obviously there are, there are seeds in Hebrew culture. Um, definitely, definitely. If those hadn't already been there, then the, wouldn't have, the, the gospel wouldn't have found fertile ground. That's an interesting thought. Are the assumptions of the Assyrians, for example, so much different than the Greeks that they wouldn't necessarily hear the gospel what, what are, we have some differences That's between those? That's a great those? question. <laughs> Is that funny? You should ask about further <laughs> Eastern civilizations. <laughs> John's well aware of my fascination with uh, Babylon and Assyria and, yes. and Persia. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about the the differences with how Mesopotamians talk about their gods, mm-hmm. and I think I think there are some some fundamental uh, challenges there to the, the would-be to, to the gospel to come mm-hmm, to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the Mesopotamian pantheon um, is much more static. Although there is conflict among the gods, um, say, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Mm-hmm. Um, we've got gods disagreeing with other gods and, and, and doing this thing in a way that a Greek would find very familiar. But it's not set against a background of fundamental war in heaven. So for the Greeks, they would assume as a basis that the current crop of gods are there because they usurp the previous crop of titans. Uh-huh. Right. So, uh-huh. so there's just a, a basic assumption that there are the moralities of the gods can conflict with other gods, and men are living in the shadow of that. The Akkadians, the Babylonians, that's not really going on there. The pantheon is far more static. There's much less of a sense of history. There's almost no sense of progress. Mm-hmm, Although mm-hmm. there's an awareness of the flood having happened. There's that's ve- interesting, yeah. In Gilgamesh, you find the flood. Don't in, you? in Gilgamesh, we find when uh, the flood, it's, it's, it's told through the eyes of it in the Pishtim, um, who, who we can uh, see as a, uh, maybe a, a different version of Noah. Uh-huh. Um, and Pishtim tells the story that um, he's telling Gilgamesh the story uh, that Enlil wanted to destroy humanity because they were too noisy, and he, he wasn't getting any sleep. <laughs> right. So he was right. like, "All right, I'll, I'll kill the party everyone." Party next door is too loud. <laughs> yeah, and so he, um, so he, he, he's going to do that. And the god of wisdom Ea comes, and he's he's pr- 
promised not to warn humans. So he, in a dream, he tells Utnapishtim's the wall of his house what's going to happen. That's how he can get, a, get around the oath he's taken. And so oh, Utnapishtim you know, listens to, to him. The and so he builds the ark and, and survives. And, and then afterwards, what, what happens is that um, Enlil's mad that somebody survived the flood and he wants to destroy them, but the other gods kind of intervene and persuade him that, look, we've been starving while everybody's dead. They haven't been worshipping us. They have the temples aren't running. The sacrifices aren't there. Right. And frankly, you know, we're we're going to get worn out um, having to do our own work for us. Mm. So you we better, need some help. So we need to keep these people around. Right. So yeah. there's a fundamental difference in the relationship between man and God. We, we see gods that are dependent on, on people. Gods are to, dependent on people, to, but the people were created to be the slaves of the gods. Slaves, right. So yeah. it's, a, it's at once a lower view of humanity, but also a lower view of the gods. Right. And it doesn't brook much moralizing. Hmm. You know, that there isn't much of an opportunity in those tales to look at those and say, Ah, piety consists in this, uh-huh. or, or, uh-huh. or, or the gods were right to do this, or well, this god was wrong to do that. You don't have any great sense of moral outrage going on that would mm-hmm. be a common staple of any Greek story. Right? Mm-hmm. A Greek tragedy is based on hubris against the gods. How could he do this thing? Right. You know, or, or, or the threat of that. Or in Homer, you find a, almost a definition of what it means to be a, an excellent man. To be an ex- that's right. right. It's, 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 there's a right way of acting. There's a right way to act which, that will please the gods. It will please most the of gods. Them anyway. Exactly. That's <laughs> Maybe right. Maybe not Poseidon. but And others. there's even a sense that there are right ways for gods to act, right. too, right. whether they ascribe right. to them or not. Yeah. It, the Mesopotamian culture. That's not the way they think. It's, it, there's, there's like a little bit of an inkling of it, but it's nowhere near as developed as you would find in, in the Greek stories. Yeah, yeah. So really there's there's much more of a what is, is. Yeah. And the gods are, and we are, and it's not going to change, and there's not really much of an ought mm. about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the way it's always been. Sure. Against that moral background, or I would say that yeah, I'd call it a moral background, but it's a it's a barely developed moral background. The gospel doesn't find much traction there mm. because there wasn't a sense of people wanting to get close to God but being unable to. Mm. That you find they're, they're fatally... in Hebrew or in, in Greek culture. Uh-huh. It, in Greek culture, maybe we're afraid of getting close to the gods. In Hebrew culture... We want to, but we're also terrified. Right, right. For the Mesopotamians, there's, there's not like a, a sacrifice kind of to the gods to that. You know, Is there a sense them. of appeasing them that way? But it's it it's very much appeasement, and, okay. and there's not a sense. But not getting together, though. Not. I don't have any sense that I could have a relationship with the gods, nor would it benefit me. Yeah. Now the, now, the funny thing in Gilgamesh is that Gilgamesh himself is sort of half God and half... He is. He's two-thirds two two thirds God said, and two-thirds... Yes. One-third, uh, what, Titan or something? Not Titan. That's not the word they No, use. he's a third man. Yeah, one-third man. Okay, he's a man. Is a, yes, it's a man and a God and a God. Or a woman and a God and a God are his 
like his his grand. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, uh, okay. So, so it, it's a mixture. He's very much the um, he, he's mortal. Yes. So the epic right. of Gilgamesh is his That's quest about for his, immortality, exactly. Right. Which fails. Yes. Um, which fails, but is somehow not quite a tragedy in the way the Greeks would would tell it. That's interesting. Um, why why isn't it a tragedy? Do you think? In the same way the Greeks would think. I think it's because. I think it's because he's trying to gain immortality for himself. Okay. So oh, not generally, but just specifically not, for himself. He's, he's not trying to benefit man. He's not. Right. It's spurred on by the loss of his friend Enkidu, but he's not trying to bring Enkidu back. So for the Greeks, right, right. you know, Orpheus is trying to bring Eurydice right, back. Right. Exactly. It's a tragedy because he's. He, he the, almost does the it. Love but seems to have conquered death, and then it doesn't. Right, um, right, right. But for, for Gilgamesh, isn't motivated by love; he's motivated by self-preservation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's not a sense that what he's doing is either um, in line with or against the natural order. It's just mm. uh, it's not normal for men to be immortal. But he's not being chastised as a great rebel in trying to gain it. Mm. Um, but he's also, um, death is something he doesn't want, but death is not a great evil that shouldn't be that he's trying to overcome. Is there any sense in Gilgamesh or the other Mesopotamian uh, myths uh, about life after death? Not much that no. I'm... I'm aware of. Okay, I haven't read not, any, but I'm really not a scholar. Scholar of that. Yeah, not there's there's Student. not like the Greeks would have an idea of Tartarus or, or Hades. Hades, right? Um, or the Norse would have Valhalla. Uh-huh. Um, for the Mesopotamians, it's not it's not really like that. That's interesting. Yeah, very good. Yeah, so I can see what you're saying about uh, how the the gospel might actually fit. Uh, the Greek world better than it would fit the Mesopotamian mind, maybe. Oh, I think sense. it seems to. Yeah. And yet the Mesopotamian mind doesn't seem to address the thing we were talking about a few minutes ago, that key issue of, of reality that there's death and there's some sort of longing for immortality. And yet that's the point of Gilgamesh. It doesn't address what happens after after death, but yet somehow death is something to be fought against or to worked uh, to to overcome, there, if possible. There, there's certain there's a, there's another story about how it is that that men are mortal, or, or a story about a a man who has the opportunity to become immortal, but he's been warned not to take the food of the gods, and so oh, yes, right, right, um, right. so he doesn't, and then you know they would have made him immortal, but he he, he, he he's he's tricked by the person who gave him the advice or or, or maybe it's just a, all a misunderstanding mm. so there's the questions are there i just don't think there's a serious attempt to answer them mm-hmm. i don't think there's evidence and, and who knows what was in the culture that we don't have any evidence sure. of today good, good point. but but of what survived there isn't an evidence of a deep longing for death to be solved that I think the Greeks absolutely have a longing for death to be solved. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. why um, the rape of Persephone is so uh, resounding. 
there's the idea that death has come and taken something it shouldn't have shouldn't have taken shouldn't have any right to mm-hmm. and then there's some kind of agreement that the gods come to in retrospect to m- marry this these two things together so that death can have um, dominion for a certain time and the life can have dominion for a certain time uh-huh. so they're trying to take these two these two things that oughtn't to be together and fit them together into some way that humanity can still get the benefit uh-huh. Uh-huh. In, in Norse culture after Balder is killed they go to everyone if you will all weep a tear we can get Balder back right. and of course Loki transforms himself into a, into a giant and, and won't weep mm-hmm. because he's, he's engineered Balder's death he was the one who and, set it all up to begin with but, but there's still even after death there's a desperation to undo this thing right And and in the Sisyphean way, there's a sense that if we could just get all the pieces together, maybe we could undo it. Mm -hmm. It's it's Mm -hmm. it's it's almost like death is a nightmare, not because it's unassailable, but because in half lucid moments we feel like it almost could be assailable. Mm -hmm. If only Mm -hmm. we knew the right words and the right things to do. Maybe we could put Seth back together again yeah, and right. he could live. Yeah. Maybe yeah. we could get a tear from every living thing and bring Boulder back. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there are these central ideas. Maybe we can, but maybe I can bring Eurydice back from, from Hades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why these stories are tragedies. Right. Well, and, but the element that makes them tragic is that desire, uns- almost unspoken yes. desire for this thing to happen, if we didn't care about that, then the story wouldn't be tragic. It would be no moving. Well, right. We, it would be a story, we would not be but moved it would, in any way. Exactly. Yes. It wouldn't have the sort of tragic aspect of it. The, the tragedy in Gilgamesh of his finding the plant, under, isn't it underwater? He finds, he finds this immortality yeah, plant. He digs a hole, he makes a way, then he goes down in the yes. water. He finds the plant, he brings it back up, he's, he's found it and and then he's he's panting on the ground and a snake comes and eats it and eats it and slithers off and sheds its skin uh and he, he also has failed mm-hmm. but the desire that uh, there wasn't a strong development of, of the desire that he had right and it certainly wasn't for anybody else um, and the fact that the story goes on after that. It, that's not the sort of climax of the story. Well, it, maybe the climax, but it's, it's not the almost, end of the story. Well, it's almost the end of the story, but it's n- certainly not a climax. What happens after that is he goes back to Uruk and yes. he writes down the tales of what happened to him. Mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Now, but doesn't it, it also was, talk about his being a different man now that his friend has died and now he's gone through this experience of losing out on... Uh, immortality, that he's not quite the tyrant that he was before? Or am I remembering that wrong? You might. I, 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 I don't. Uh, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll I, dig into that. We'll dig into, next time, well, yeah. we, should, we should look into that. I mean, I'm speaking from having read it, you know, 30 years ago. So uh, I, I may have remembered it wrong. But it seemed to me that, that was, there was a difference in his in his demeanor uh, after having gone through all that. Certainly he was sadder. You mentioned earlier he he, was sadder. Yeah, he he certainly was was a lot less inconvenient to all of his subjects. Right. That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. Because that that oughtness is missing somehow uh, in the, the, the oughtness that you hear all the time in Greek thought 
uh, is somehow missing in that, isn't it? He, it's not like he should have been less of a tyrant. There isn't some sort of overarching moral no, thing. It's just he was that people way. People wish that he wouldn't inconvenience them so yeah, much yeah, and right. steal their women and make them build walls and temples. Yeah, and he things. was stealing uh, it, brides on the it, day of their wedding. And all, things. Yeah, all of the brides. He he had prima nocta. Oh um, my my! But but there isn't a sense that they're deeply morally right to appeal against Gilgamesh. Um, and certainly Gilgamesh has no moral sense right, to, right, right. to um, you know, think that he shouldn't do a particular thing. Mm-hmm. M- Gilgamesh's might is certainly what makes right for, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. for that tale. It's so different than the Greeks. So that's a good point about one being more um, amenable to the gospel than the other. Um, I've often wondered how it is that the Greeks got so many things right. Uh, you know, <laughs> yes, <laughs> they they definitely got things wrong. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but but to to be as close as they were for so many things, and then when Jesus comes along, it's like he turns on a flashlight and shows how all those Greek things could work and more. You know, uh, bringing the, the the one and the many together in the Trinity, and and uh, you know the idea of of God becoming man in the Logos. Uh, holding to that transcendent Greek ideal, as it were, of a, of a perfection, and yet having that come become flesh and live among us, takes that to a whole new degree. And, and like you were saying earlier, the strange idea that God would care enough to want to condescend to us, and then, I mean, in the incarnation, but then even more so in the... In the crucifixion. Yes. Why on earth would he die for those who don't deserve it? Yeah. So that's a, a, a true, I think it's a, it's the uniqueness of the Christian faith. I, don't, I haven't seen any other uh, myth or philosophy that suggests that, uh, that God should punish himself for the benefit of those who don't deserve it. C- certainly. The, the idea that there should be a punishment, that's... The punishment alone universal. is pretty... The idea, Universal, yes. the idea that God might die and come back, that, that also is in other places. Mm-hmm. But the idea that God would take the punishment himself, mm-hmm. that his, his work would be him giving himself for men, yeah. that's a very... The, there are elements of that. So, uh, again, in the Greek, in, in uh, Aeschylus and Prometheus Bound, has Prometheus on the rock, he's been bound by Zeus for helping to preserve mankind. Zeus right. wanted to destroy, and he's, he's given fire to mortals, and he's, he's given a lot of other things too. And yeah. different things. Right. And, and he's, he's, he's certainly being punished. Oh, my, 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 my. He's it. getting his liver eaten out every He's, he's getting day his liver. Well, yeah, in Aeschylus, that's. That's not That's happening out. yet. Ha- he's, okay. being, well, the, he's just bound. He, he's, he's, not, he's, he's bound at the beginning, and then there's that threat of that to come, and because yeah, Zeus yeah. wants to get some information from him, Prometheus has, has kind of talked with the fates, and he knows what's what's coming for his use. Mm-hmm. So, so the even even there, nascent perhaps is the idea that a god could give themselves for for the benefit of of man, but it's not crystallized. Um, as it is in the Gospels. Mm. Well, Prometheus now isn't a god. 
No, right? he's a so titan. He's looking after the mankind, yeah. but the gods aren't looking after mankind. Exactly. In fact, the, the, the punishment is because he because he deigned to look he's, after the men. It, human this, beings. It, it's it's Prometheus is rebelling against Zeus. That's right. And the the his justification for rebelling against Zeus is that Zeus is a rebel against Kronos. His own father. Yeah. Right. Who, who is a rebel against Uranus. And, so and if I remember, it was uh, Prometheus has actually assisted Zeus to overcome Kronos. To overcome Kronos. Yeah. And he was he went after his father. Kronos, Kronos went after his after father. his father. And his children. And he yeah. ate them, yeah. if I remember so there's right. A, so there's very much, um, in the war in heaven as it's presented for the Greeks, hmm. um, the position of the gods is to take uh, power to themselves and give the consequences to others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the giving and the taking is I'm in charge, therefore, or, or to get to be in charge, or because I'm in charge, I'm taking power and, and glory to myself, mm -hmm. and what I'm giving is is death and destruction, or mm -hmm. you're going to pay for my glory. And isn't isn't that kind of the natural order of the sinful human being? That's, Absolutely. That's how we do it, right? So all we've done really is created myths that project our own fallenness into the gods and make like that writ large, like you were saying. Absolutely. Uh, so it's truly unusual, um, unique, to have a God who cares enough about his people to, to suffer in their place. Um, That's to, to condescend at all, but to, to condescend to even take on their, their uh, evils and, uh, and, and die in their place. Yeah, the idea is, ex as expressed in, uh, in the book of Hebrews, that he would, um, uh, uh, he, he would condescend to death on a cross to, to take that which is shameful, yes. not despising the shame, but in, for for another goal. Yes, that right. is for the joy set before him. He says that is the joy. But what is the joy? The joy isn't that Christ would be elevated above all to lord it over them. No. The yeah. joy is that Christ, in His uh, raising up, will bring. His body with him, right. his body, the people who he has brought into union with himself, yeah. and so the the thing he's done to suffer, the purpose of it is to bring men up into union with the Godhead. Yeah, yeah. This Astonishing. is this is completely foreign. Never hear Zeus talk that way. <laughs> never hear, never hear that. No, that's right. So, so the idea of a servant. Power, use of power for servant, the benefit of others. Exactly. The opposite of what you hear in the Exactly. Midst. The, the, um, yeah, the, the person of Christ before Pilate, yes. um, which is to lay down his power and subject it to an earthly power, that this is not what gods do. Right, right, right. And yet to... Lay that power down that way is the secret of bringing about the very thing that he wanted to do. So it's kind of an undermining of even Satan's power 
to do to do it the way he did. That is, the the lower you go, the more you can bring up, kind of thing. And so he goes all the way to the bottom. It's interesting. I'm thinking about the echo of I don't know how far we can push this, but the echo of Gilgamesh actually finding immortality by digging it's, it's down. down yes. Isn't that interesting? That's that right. it's it's not climbing into a tree to find it. It's digging down into the yeah in, down below. Well, I, I think you've just identified another axiom, or maybe a clearer uh, part of the axiom. There is this idea of um, the life we want being something that we gain by giving up power, yes. by giving up rights. Yes. Um, that is certainly a, an apparent contradiction that's key in Christian civilization. Yes. Um, that's not, it's hinted at in others, but not necessarily key. It certainly isn't present, I think, in Mesopotamian culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we start thinking about axioms to hold, we consider the, the natural order of the world. We consider the claim, the historical events uh, like the resurrection, the incarnation and the resurrection uh, that we have to fit into it. Um, but there are elements of the Christian way of thinking that are so radically different that it takes a whole new way of thought. I mean, think about the, mm -hmm. the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount where he says you've been told to love your neighbors and hate your enemies and everybody in all the myths we're yep. talking about yep, would absolutely. say, that's I can do that. Right, I'm all for that, right? I'd be a moral person if I love my friends and hate my enemies. Um, but he says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. And that's what people should have, had their heads explode then, right? How on earth does anybody ever do that, right? Um, forgive, forgive as I forgive you. What a what an incredibly difficult thing to do that is. You know, everybody's been wounded by others. How can we possibly forgive genuine wrongs? Um, so, so there are, well, I'm not getting into the specifics of those things. I'm trying to say that the axioms that seem to be the part and parcel of the Christian faith on some level are uh, resonating with, uh, resonate with uh, uh, the Greek world and to the, to the extension of the Greek world and the Roman world and so on. And even in the Norse world, maybe not as much in the Assyrian world, the Mesopotamian world, the land between two rivers. Yeah, but it's like the overtones of those moral laws have been heard yeah. and, the, and yeah. the echo of it has been there and, and so they're aware of this part of the moral law and, and when Jesus is saying yes you know this part absolutely now let me show you where it is at a more fundamental level come mm -hmm. down here and I say not just that part of the law that you love your friends and hate your enemies but now deeper here is this requirement or this truth that you love your enemies and you yeah. pray for those who persecute you. Yeah. And it's resonating on the same wavelength, but it's richer and more fundamental. Right, right. Uh, and it brings that idea in that we aren't here to acquire power for ourselves and damage others with that power if they don't do what we like. It calls us to servanthood leadership, which is the way he, yes. led, he leads us with servant, servant leadership. Um, but then he can point to the back to the the agricultural world and say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it never bears fruit. Mm -hmm. And so there's a resonance there with the thing you just mentioned. That is, yes, love your friends, hate your enemies. 
but maybe you should be thinking a little deeper, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. And the initial response is, no way, I'm not doing that. They, you know what they've done to me? They raped my you know, wife and yes. they killed my brother and they, how can I ever forgive any of that stuff? Mm. Um, and yet at the same time, he can say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it never bears fruit. So if you're interested in bearing fruit, and that's a kind of intuitive, axiomatic thing. We want our, our lives to bear fruit, to be yeah. fruitful. Um, you have to consider that death is a part of that, giving yourself away, dying to yourself, something like that. And that is counterintuitive, and yet it's not on a kind of natural level. His, he's built the world to reflect that kind of, that kind of truth. You know? Yeah, I think that's why we might think that this axiom is reasonable, mm. is because mm -hmm. if we accept that death is the way to life, yes. that his death is the way to our life, and us dying to ourselves in him is the way to our being alive in him. Right, and fruit. If, if we accept that as an axiom, we then look around and we find that that's a... Uh, that the, the nature he's created is full of that principle yeah, writ yeah. in in background or or in foreground in many other areas. Like when when Aslan says the witch didn't know the deeper magic. Yes, the deeper There's magic kind from of before deeper, the dawn of time. Right. Yes. There's a deeper thing going on here. And so if you embrace that axiom, I think what you're saying is that when you embrace that axiom, you see how it resonates with everything better than any other axiom does. It's an axiom it. that illuminates things that otherwise we wouldn't have any explanation for. We, we might not care about having an explanation right, for. Right. I, I think we, we, would be, we would be poorer for it. Mm, yeah, no doubt. Well, that may be a good place for us to stop. This has been a for, fun one, Joe. This one, yeah, it's been Enjoy great this. to talk with you about this. I'm so grateful to hear about uh, 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 Gilgamesh and about uh, the Greeks and the Norse more than we have. Um, I hope that's been helpful to our listeners. Uh, I, we would advise you, uh, encourage you to read these books, um, to read the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, to, to read uh, uh, Homer, uh, the, uh, the Odyssey, in particular, and and in uh, and Aeschylus too, um, the, uh, the Prometheus Bound would be good to read. Um, Prometheus Unbound is going to give you a kind of in, insight into, I think, Frankenstein and to the Romantics and so on. That, uh, but they're so in touch with the Greeks still, even so, in the early part of the nineteenth century. Yes, uh, they still have a big influence on our lives. Well. Uh, if you have questions about these things, if you want to talk with us about them, I hope you'll write to us at uh, director at centerws.com. Uh, we want to encourage you to be a part of this conversation too, and when we hear from you, we'll be glad to answer either by email or maybe answer on uh, our next podcast when we start getting questions in. So uh, give us a call, drop us a, drop us a line, and uh, let us know what you're thinking. Uh, this has been uh, From the Center. This is our podcast of the Center for Western Studies, and we will see you next time. Thanks see you next time. time.